Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm your co-host, John Walsh. And I'm your co-host, Felicia Ellsworth. John and I are partners at Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business. Today's episode focuses on the one topic that has dominated headlines and conversation across the world more than any other over the last two years, the COVID-19 pandemic. The beginning of 2022 saw the pandemic rage on as the U.S. struggled to contain the surge of Omicron variant cases. Omicron caused some of the pandemic's sharpest spikes in COVID-19 infections as it overtook previous variants like Delta. But almost as steeply as cases rose, they fell. Recently, though, even more contagious Omicron subvariants BA 2.12 and BA 2.12.1 have emerged, which has made cases soar again. The story of the pandemic changes almost every day. To break it all down, I am joined by one of the nation's leading authorities on the pandemic, one of President Biden's former senior advisors, Andy Slavitt, and one of my partners here at Wilmer Hale, Thomas Strickland. Andy Slavitt is a former senior advisor to the White House's pandemic response team under President Biden, as well as a former consultant to Wilmer Hale. He's host of his own podcast, In the Bubble, and author of the book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Before serving on Biden's COVID-19 response team, Mr. Slavitt served as the acting administrator of the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama from 2015 to 2017. Thomas Strickland served as a senior member of the Obama administration, specifically as chief of staff and assistant secretary for Fish and Wildlife and Parks for the United States Department of the Interior. He also has served as United States Attorney for the District of Colorado and chief legal officer at United Health Group. Thank you both for being here. Felicia, it's great to be here. Thank you, Felicia. Nice to be here. Thank you both for being here. So let's jump right in to the question sort of on everyone's mind about the state of the pandemic right now. Andy, I know no one can predict the future, but what, what do the next few months look like? How do you see it? Well, you presume we can predict the next few months. <laughs> well, look, I was doing a presentation for the NBA with David Ho, who's the well-known AIDS researcher who really created the cure for AIDS. He made a comment that I'd repeat to you here, which is that in a sense, the public has already decided the pandemic is over. And that in 1919, when we had the major flu outbreak, that third year after the flu, there were a large number of deaths, actually. But people don't think about it that way, because at some point, the public decides that the pandemic is over. And so before I get to the scientific part of your question, I think what a lot of people want to know is, are we going to have more mandates? And are we going to have more lockdowns? And are we going to have you know any of the kinds of disruptions to sports teams, schools, businesses that we've experienced? And the answer to that is, it's very unlikely. And that's not to say that we won't have waves of COVID. It's not to say that we might not have new mutations. It's not to say that we won't still be dealing with a large number of people dying. The remnants of COVID could be we have a disease around that's not that different from cardiovascular disease, tens of millions of people with long COVID, and a disease that's the number three or four killer, hundreds of thousands of people a year. But the truth in our society is that when the majority of people have essentially decided that they're reasonably safe, and that any deprivation is not worth the potential risk to them, they do move on. We still have to watch out for people who are in nursing homes and congregate care settings, people who have pre-existing conditions. You know, those people are at risk, people who are not vaccinated. So there are still people that we should be worried about, but I think we should presume that regardless of what comes, 
in the next few months or even the next couple of years, we're going to see a normal state. Now, the scientific to that answer is different. The scientific answer to that question is in all probability, we'll see some continued additional Omicron waves, but that they'll likely be what scientists call drift, not shift, meaning that they'll be incremental to the Omicron we've seen before. And there won't be the kind of major disruptive waves that we saw in Delta and Omicron, and that those, if they happen, are going to be much more like once a decade type events. Andy, we're now at a point, I live out in Northern California, and the return to work is finally taking hold out here. In some parts of the country, return to work and normalcy came more quickly. But out here in San Francisco, this is the week the tech companies were asking people to come in, generally speaking, for three days a week. How do you see that going? And from a public health standpoint, do you think that can be done safely, given the level of vaccination, the level of herd immunity? How risky is that? And each company is trying to figure out exactly how to do it in the safest way and disclaimers about people coming into their office and different companies approaching it differently. But what's your take on this part of the experience, you know, kind of returning to normalcy? So I think we're entering a stage that's moving from what I'd call government action and decision-making to individual action and responsibility. And it's really important that we as individuals take that seriously and understand that just because a governor or a restaurant says you don't need to have a mask, you don't need to be vaccinated, that doesn't make it safe. What instead it's meant to communicate is you choose, you make the decision. When you go to school, you go to work, you go to a ball game. I'm going to the Warriors game actually on Saturday, Tom. And they're not requiring proof of vaccination to get in. They're not requiring proof of a negative test. And so it feels to people, I think, a little abrupt, like we've gone from one extreme to the other. And we really haven't gone to this other extreme. What we've done is we basically said, hey, you have the tools now. You've got vaccines, you've got boosters, you've got tests, we've got therapies, we've got masks, use them. And what I think I'm a little afraid of is that people will hear, in this case, Governor Newsom or Mayor Breed say they're not required, and interpret that to say nobody should wear them. When in fact, people have to take stock of their individual circumstances and their environment around them and decide what's safe. And we ought to be accepting of the fact that if people want to show up to the office with a mask, or if they want to continue to take precautions, or if they don't want to dine collectively with others, that that's okay. That means people have their own circumstances that they're going to have to attend to. But, you know, I try to have, take a balance. If I look around and we've got a low amount of COVID, I'm going to live my life, pull down my mask, have a drink of my beer, enjoy the game. To a certain extent, you count on the fact that others around you are taking care of themselves as well. I think that's going to be less and less the case because more and more people, as they drop their own guards, it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thinking about just sort of the public policy and kind of legal aspects of this, you mentioned earlier that you don't see us going back to a lot of mandates necessarily because the public's sort of not ready for it. At, at the time we're recording this, the city of Philadelphia recently reimposed their indoor mask mandate. So I wonder if you can just give us some thoughts on why it is that you don't think that local and state governments are going to go back to some of those mandates that we saw. If we do have another large surge, either now with this uh, sub-variant of Omicron or, you know, next winter. Look, some will. You always find some place that's going to do something. And a lot of people have pointed out the Philadelphia situation as evidence that people will put them back up. I'm not suggesting that certain towns or cities or restaurants or whatever won't. But unless we have hospitals overflowing again, and quite frankly, if you're in the southern part of the country, even if hospitals are overflowing, I don't expect it to happen. Look, politicians, they want to be liked. It's just in their genes. They just can't stand being disliked. 
part of my message for politicians during the heart of the pandemic was you're going to have to make some unpopular decisions. And if you can't make unpopular decisions to save people's lives, then you probably don't, you're probably not a wartime governor or mayor or legislator. And you got to sometimes do the right thing, even if it might cost you. At this point in time, though, with the vast majority of people feeling safe, with tools abundantly available, some people are choosing not to use those tools, vaccines, boosters, et cetera. You know, to certain extent, politicians are saying, why should I require everybody to accommodate the small portion of people that aren't willing to play and participate and it doesn't feel right to people? And politicians play to the crowds. I mean, even the best of them. And I don't think we're going to see that. I also think your listeners and, and you all have a perspective on this. I think people are concerned that court challenges aren't going to stand up. I think we're going to see the litigation threat is so strong that the CDC might actually lose in the Supreme Court. And if it does, then the next time we have a serious outbreak, that tool won't be there. So the litigation threat is actually part of the picture, too. Andy, can we talk about the, you've hit on it, but the politicalization of the pandemic. Were you surprised, as you look back on it, how much of a fault line it became over the last two years? and how deep the divisions are that it both played into and seemed to exacerbate. And then I'll have to say part two of that is different countries responded differently, and there were sometimes unexpected consequences. You know, New Zealand had one approach, and other countries had different approaches, and it's kind of a two-part question. Could you just speak to that? And then we want to hear a little bit more about the legal landscape, because even though you're not a lawyer, having known you for a long time and worked with you in legal settings, I know how insightful you are about law and policy. So... Just take wearing a mask or getting vaccinated. Nobody has to like wearing a mask. We could argue over the merit of masks. The difference in the U.S. and other parts of the world is not that, and people all over the world didn't have arguments over masks. The difference is in the U.S., unlike anywhere else, it was a matter of personal and political identity. So who you voted for tended to dictate your attitude towards whether or not you felt like a mask worked or a vaccine worked. Not universally, of course, but to a pretty great extent. Your social environment, the town you lived in, the politics of where you lived tended to influence, hey, if I wear that color jersey, I do believe or don't believe in the following things. So let's separate it out. It's legitimate discourse to argue over whether or not people should be required to wear masks in school. It's a legitimate question with strong feelings on all sides. And the difference here in the U.S. is that it was carried out differently. It was carried out based on political lines as opposed to just based on the merits of whether or not each of these decisions is good or bad. I think that started in the Trump administration when Trump politicized the whole notion of wearing a mask, the whole idea of complying with public health guidelines, and it sort of poisoned the well a bit. But what I'm not saying is that we don't have a right to say, hey, I disagree with this public health agency. What I'm not saying is that we don't have the right to argue in a public discourse over the legitimacy of different recommendations. You know, let's face it, these public health agencies are having to make it up as they go along. Many of the situations they're in are they're in for the first time. They're not always going to get it right. And it's fair to say, hey, I think the CDC got this one wrong. Or it's fair to say in a constructive fashion, I think we're going too far in one direction or the other. And it's even okay for those to be somewhat emotional conversations because people are tired and so forth. But there is a very different thing that happens when you've got a pre-baked conception based upon your politics 
And that makes it much more intractable. It makes it much harder to have these dialogues. It makes it much harder for us to listen to one another. And it causes us to tend to demonize people who believe differently. It causes us to say, if you don't wear masks, you're a bad person. Or if you do wear a mask, you're that kind of person. And that's just not a healthy way to have a dialogue in a particularly a trying time. And, you know, we've been at war, right? We've been at war, in a matter of speaking, against a foreign invader that has killed a million Americans. And we could have done a better job having each other's back during this difficult time. So that's a really interesting analogy, Andy. And I think, again, from the legal perspective, when we think about the federal government's powers here and analogizing it to wartime powers, it does feel like a federal problem. And and I know there have been discussions about how does it make sense to have one person on one side of a state line be required to wear a mask and somebody 10 feet away not. Putting aside the litigation and legal risk that you rightly flagged, how do you think about the right way from sort of a policy's perspective to try and implement some of these public health measures? So uh, let's make the distinction between kind of regionalism and federalism. Sort of as a principle, it is important to say that if we have an outbreak in New York City and Tom is sitting there in San Francisco, it doesn't make no sense in the world for Tom to have to wear a mask or comply with some public health guideline for something that's happening 3,000 miles away, right? So regionally, we should be making calls, just like it doesn't make sense for you if you're in Washington, D.C., to be extra careful with your water resources when we've got a water problem in California. So there's regional differences that we ought to respect and regional and local decision-making that we ought to respect because we have a very big country geographically, and we have very limited patience for depriving ourselves of anything. So we should only ask our citizens to make sacrifices when it's truly necessary. But I distinguish that from a federalist system, which essentially says that we have no ability to make uniform policy over things that can really best and most efficiently be done centrally. And that's where our inability to protect citizens in Florida, when we can protect citizens in another state, jeopardizes us. And so when it comes to public health, I think having an ability to apply principles uniformly and then vary them regionally based upon circumstance, and this is where governors and mayors should absolutely have a principal role, is a better idea. That's obviously not how many people see the situation. That's not necessarily how every court sees the situation. That's certainly not how politicians see the situation. And in all cases, it requires a level of collaboration between the state and federal government that's not always going to be easy. But I think we're doing it on the wrong rule set. Can you speak to what's going on in China? They had a zero tolerance. They wanted to keep all cases out. What lessons do we learn from that? And what lessons do we learn from our own experience? How do we go into the potential for the next pandemic, which would seem inevitable at some point, whether it's another 100-year gap or something much less? What do we need to do differently based on what we've learned both here in this country and what we're watching play out in the rest of the world? So there's a combination of circumstances, which include how much prior infection and immunity there is, the quality of vaccines, the amount of vaccinations, and the recency of vaccinations all go into determining what you're going to experience when you get hit with a wave. And China's problem, if you're going to describe China's circumstance, it would be the following. Very little prior immunity and a pretty poorly performing vaccine. It's not a zero, but Sinopharm is not the same caliber of a vaccine as the Pfizer, Moderna, mRNA vaccines. So you have a public with no protection and a lower quality vaccine. And so then what happens when not good old COVID hits you, 
But COVID on triple steroids, Omicron hits you. Omicron being a, a virus, as we know, that's so contagious that ventilation systems and small amounts of contact, one airline trip, one airline passenger flying in, or in the case of, of Hong Kong, gerbils, people who pass it to gerbils and gerbils who pass it back to people, can be enough to generate a problem. So that's what hit China. In Hong Kong, the issues were a little bit different in that vaccine hesitancy among the elderly is really high. So not only do they have a not a high quality vaccine, but many people who are older in Hong Kong, and I don't want to typecast and over-represent this, but traditional Western medicine isn't well-trusted in all parts of China. So we've seen an extraordinarily high death rate in Hong Kong because they've had some of the factors we had in China, a not very well-performing vaccine, and then only about a 20% vaccination rate among the elderly. And the thing that's interesting, Tom, is you can explain it all after the fact. It's all logical after the fact. What you can't do is you've said, okay, tell me how Omicron's going to hit China or Hong Kong and when and what will be the impacts. The variables are too many to figure it out. So it's all rational when you do that post-game study. But while you're playing the game, this thing is so random and spread so randomly, it could literally be one person gets off an airplane and decides to get off the airplane in JFK instead of getting off in O'Hare. And that's why we had the outbreak in New York instead of in Chicago at the beginning of 2020. So random events are actually much more responsible for what happened and who lived and who died than we'd like to believe. There's still a lot we don't know. What makes someone a super spreader? We don't know the answer to that. You mean the wrong person showed up at the wrong event at the wrong time, and it could have had very little to do with how much care that was taken. And that's not a very satisfying answer, but it's the truth, is that if you looked at it under a microscope, see a bunch of random activity, and some amount of the randomness is what causes some of the harm. What are the lessons to be learned that we need to keep in mind and apply if there are preventive steps we need to take going forward to just be in a better position? Bill Gates famously did a TED Talk you know, a number of years ago predicting a pandemic, and many others did as well. We didn't heed that. What do we need to heed now going forward? We'll start with what we know that worked really well. The science worked pretty damn well. The investments in a vaccine platform, an mRNA platform, allow you to rapidly develop effective vaccines in a pretty nimble fashion and to adjust pretty quickly. The therapies that were just introduced, Paxlovid from Pfizer, is a home run. I tell you, anyone out there, if you know someone or someone in your family gets COVID within five days, if they're feeling at risk, Paxlovid is a wonder drug. So yay for our scientists. And by the way, let's applaud every tax dollar we paid into the NIH over the course of the last decades that went to fund the mRNA platform so that it was ready. So we need to keep doing that, keep believing in science. Let's talk about some of the things that didn't work. Public trust, incredibly low. About half the people in the country trust the government, about half the people don't trust, and half of the rest of them don't trust anybody. They don't trust science, they don't trust institutions, they don't trust pharma companies, for sure. And they feel betrayed and let down by society as a whole. And if you can get 50 to 75% of almost anything, Tom, as you know, you can win most elections. But in a pandemic, sometimes 75% just isn't enough. And we've learned that a lot of people feel left behind for a variety of reasons, well before the pandemic. And that brokenness, that brokenness really cost us and really hurt us and cost us a lot of lives. I think there are some basic fundamental lessons that are, I think, a little bit more on the literal side that you'd like to think we learned well. Let's have enough masks. Let's have enough ventilators. Let's have enough productive capacity. I think we probably will have done a B to a B minus job at learning those lessons. 
I think there has actually been quite a big rebellion against public health and against investment in public health. That's probably political, but it's probably also born out of frustration at the public health agencies not getting everything right and people feeling like they were forced to undergo deprivations when they weren't going to die. This is just sort of how you feel after the fact. When you don't die, you're not grateful you're alive. You're pissed off about the fact that you had to get your life disrupted. So I'm not so sure we're going to learn all of those lessons. But I think some of the fundamental, most important lessons, I think, are probably still quite a bit distance from us. We should have learned about all the kids that couldn't eat lunch if they weren't going to school during this process. Are we going to address that problem? We should have learned about all the kids that don't have access to the internet and had to do their homework in parking lots. Are we going to do something about that? We should have learned about how a lot of people live very much on the margins. And whether you're in a nursing home, a farm labor camp, an Indian reservation, which you know quite a bit about, Tom, that you were very much at risk of dying during the crisis and that we could do a lot better protecting people. Those are the core fundamental lessons of our society that matter not just when you're in a pandemic, they matter every day. And I would say we didn't do a great job learning those lessons. If we did, then things like the child tax credit that we've had for the last year and expires at the end of this year would be renewed because those are the kind of weapons we need in order, we need to fight poverty. We need to give people some spending money. We need to give people a chance to put their kids in preschool when they're working. To me, those are the fundamental lessons of the pandemic. They don't have anything to do with public health. They have everything to do with what we're willing to tolerate when the going gets tough. A final question for you, Andy. Are we prepared for the next pandemic, whether it's the next really serious wave of COVID or something entirely different that we haven't even thought about yet? Are we as a country prepared for that? Are we as a world prepared for that? I'd say that we have some muscle memory of what to do and how to keep ourselves safe. I think our scientists will be in a great position to once again rise to the occasion. I think we should go away from this with greater faith in science. The real question is, do we have enough faith in each other and in our society and in our norms? Because before science can develop the tools that are necessary, the only defense we have is one another. The only defense we have is our willingness to follow a set of norms that protect us all, whether they're legal in nature or not. The countries around the world that had the fewest deaths Hong Kong and Vietnam didn't need mask mandates because they had prior experience with MERS, they had prior experience with SARS-1, and people reflexively wore masks. There wasn't a legal element to it. We have that experience now. We should know better. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And are we willing to, in cases where we don't personally feel at risk, take action? If I know that Tom's at risk of getting sick and I'm going to be around Tom, but it's a pain for me to wear a mask, will I wear a mask? The question is really as simple as that. Are we going to be willing to do some things, take on a little bit of sacrifice for people we don't know so that they're okay too? A lot of countries, a lot of societies, the answer was yes. Countries that have more egalitarian societies, people that are more the same like Japan, New Zealand, some Scandinavian countries, countries with big disparities in wealth like Russia, like India, like the US, like Brazil, did not do as good a job there. Those are hard questions to answer. I'm just going to say one more thing at the end. First of all, I mean, to thank you, as I know Felicia will, but also just to point out, Andy has a very meaningful podcast himself called In the Bubble. And a week ago, he had occasion to interview Ken Burns regarding the Ben Franklin documentary that he did. And a part of that interview deals with this very topic and Ben Franklin's own experience, the smallpox pandemic that affected Philadelphia and America at that time and his own loss of his own child. It's fascinating. 
And it points out that 250 years ago, this country was grappling with some of the same issues. He's great. Thank you. Thank you. Andy, thank you very much for joining us and for giving us your insights and experience on this very tough set of issues surrounding the pandemic. Unfortunately, I'm sure new issues will come to light and it will be fascinating to see how the Biden administration, Congress, and the states will handle these issues. Depending on these developments, we may ask you to come back on In the Public Interest for an update. And thank you everyone listening in for joining us on this episode of In the Public Interest. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time on In the Public Interest.